Hello, welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the coming days, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever IdeaFest at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, the economic havoc caused by the closure of a GM plant in Janesville. Amy Goldstein, a staff writer with the Washington Post, talks about her book, Janesville, an American Story, which sheds light on how Wisconsin workers were affected by the closure. She was joined by Marquette University pollster Charles Franklin for a discussion on Wisconsin's economy. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. I thought I would start by telling you about my first time in town. Um, uh, I first stepped into Janesville on July 26, 2011. And I was on an exploratory mission trying to get a feel for what was going on in this small city. And I'd lined up a few people to see in advance. And the first person I met with was a guy named Stan Milam. Um, he's an old time journalist in town. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of his name, but he was the State House Bureau Chief for the Janesville Gazette for a long time. And by the time I met him, um, he had left the newspaper and had a radio show, and he also was working as an education consultant, and he had an office, which is the first place where I met him, uh, and what had, in the first half of the 20th century, been the world headquarters of the Parker Pen Company. And by the time I met him, um, it had been converted into an office building, and an awful lot of those offices were empty. And Stan is a good raconteur, and he and I talked for a few hours um, that day about the history of Janesville and what the town used to be like and what it was like now. And finally, he asked me the question I thought he'd never asked, which was, would you like to see the plant? So I got into the car of um, this guy who I had never met before uh, earlier that day, and we drove down uh, Center Avenue in town and turned left onto Delavan Drive, and soon enough, this enormous plant uh, was on the right, uh, 4.8 million square feet of nothing going on. And as we were getting closer, Stan said something to me that surprised me. He said he hated to drive by it. And this surprised me because Stan was a pretty tough seasoned reporter. Um, I came to know him pretty well and believed him when he said that he viewed himself as a cynic. And I asked him, you know, why do you hate to drive by here? It's been like this for a few years. Like, what's the deal here? And what he told me was that his father had worked on the plant. And when he was a boy, he remembered how proud his dad had been to be able to buy his first Chevy on his GM wages. And I thought if this old time, tough season reporter um, cringed at the sight of this closed um, auto plant, that told me something about uh, this community and what this work had represented. Something about identity and how life had been and how it wasn't that way anymore, despite people's expectations that it would have kept going. Now that's the kind of thing that makes a journalist like me kind of excited. And I kept coming back for years um, to get to know people in Janesville. So what was I doing in that city on that July 2011 day on this exploratory mission? Well, a couple years before, I had started thinking about writing um, a close-up of what really happens when work goes away. Um, I was, uh, at the time, doing a very broad social policy beat um, for my job at the Washington Post, and I had done a few stories in different parts of the country about 
what I later learned were called recession effects. What's the ground level view of what happens when the economy um, falls apart? And I had done a story in southwest uh, Florida about people who are falling out of the middle class and finding themselves applying for welfare for the first time. And I did a story out of South Carolina um, about the strains on the private sector, the sort of nonprofit part of the social safety net, places like food banks that were being slammed by more customers than they, more clients than they'd ever had, and uh, at the same time dwindling donations because not enough people had enough money to be donating to them. And as I was doing these stories, I started paying closer attention to what kind of work I saw other journalists writing about what was going on in the country. And I noticed that the main stories about the economy at the time were really about political fighting over the economic policies of the government. Um, uh, President Obama was pretty new in office and he had pushed through, you may remember, a stimulus package. So there's a lot of debate about whether that was or was not proving effective. And then I started noticing a lot of stories in um, particularly the 2010 midterm election uh, that were talking, I mean, this is going to seem quaint compared to this last election cycle, but even then um, we're talking about uh, voter apathy, voter disenchantment, uh, voter disaffection. Um, and what struck me was that I didn't see much writing that was fusing those two things. And I started to think that you really couldn't understand why people in this country were feeling insecure or disaffected unless you understood their economic experiences, uh, jobs that they had lost, jobs that people they knew had lost, fears that their jobs might be the next one to go. And I was struck um, by a study I found, um, which is done by the Pew Foundation, uh, that was a content analysis of, as you can see, about 10,000 news stories in the first half of 2009, which was the end of the official period of the Great Recession. And you can see that most of the stories were about the bailout and banking, the stimulus plan, the auto industry, and that little red box to the right uh, about the effects of the bad economy on ordinary people was 5% of the coverage. So I decided to become a one-woman counterforce. <laughs> and, uh, that, it was that gap that led me to start looking for a place where I could write about a community that um, was going through hard times and what it really meant to people and to the texture of, um, of a town. So how did I end up in Janesville? I had never been there. I didn't know anybody in Janesville. I had been in Wisconsin at that point a grand total of one time in my life. But when I was doing some of these um, recession effect stories for the Post and I was looking for settings for those stories, somebody had mentioned to me that there was a small city in Wisconsin that had just lost what was the oldest operating auto plant in the country. And at the time, I didn't come out here because the plant had closed quite recently and a lot of people who had been uh, GM workers um, themselves as opposed to supplier workers, supplier companies, um, were still getting what was called subpay, you know, union unemployment benefits on top of their government unemployment benefits. So the pain really hadn't seeped in yet. But when I started to get serious about looking for a place to do um, what I used to call the project, because I was scared to say the word book yet, uh, when I started the project, um, Janesville lingered. And you know, if you think about it, if you want to write about one place as a microcosm or a metaphor for what's going on in a country, you better choose it carefully. So I thought a lot about what were the criteria um, by which I should select some place. And it just seemed as the more I thought about that Janesville 
fit the bill. Um, I was interested in finding a place that had never before been part of the Rust Belt because I wanted to be writing not about an accumulation of economic decay over decades, but about what this bad economic time in our country's history had done to a community. And that was definitely true of Janesville. And of course, I needed a place that lost a lot of jobs. That's the Rock County Job Center, was sort of ground zero for where people turned up to get advice about what to do and the jobs they thought they'd have uh, for the rest of their working lives suddenly went away. And um, this dovetails with your uh, cold but interesting statistics. <laughs> um, so in 2008 and 2009, Rock County, um, which Janesville's the county seat, lost about 9,000 jobs if you look at federal data. And the unemployment rate, you know, you mentioned that um, statewide, the high point for unemployment was 9% statewide. Uh, in Janesville, in June of 2008, which was the month that General Motors noticed, uh, gave the announcement that the plant eventually was going to close, uh, it was 5.4%. By the next March, a few months after the plant did close, it shot up to over 13%. I also wanted a place that um, mirrored the national pattern of job losses in this recession. So in the recent recession, the greatest proportion of jobs were um, kind that had paid pretty well but not required a lot of higher education. That was certainly true of, of uh, auto factory jobs. More men than women lost jobs in this recession. That was true of Janesville. I could go on, but it seemed like the pattern of work that was lost in Janesville was typical um, and could serve as a metaphor for what was going on in the country. Janesville also, because even though I was still calling it a project at the outset, I was thinking about what would be rich context for the story that I had this idea of telling. And Janesville fit nicely into the sweep of US history. I remember discovering um, a YouTube video of a speech that Barack Obama gave when he was uh, Senator Obama uh, trying to get the Democratic nomination in uh, February of 2008. And having absolute goosebumps as I was sitting, looking at a computer, watching Obama saying, the promise of Janesville is the promise of America. And thinking, I would like to have those words in what I'm going to write. <laughs> because it was such an irony, because within months, that plant was gone. And this was a big economic speech in which um, candidate Obama was laying out his economic agenda. And he basically said, um, if you follow my prescription for what this country should do and what the government should do about the economy, he said, this plant is going to be here for another hundred years, and it was closed uh, less than a year later. Janesville also fit nicely into the sweep of U.S. history. In addition to Obama's speech, um, it had been part of the famous uh, General Motors sit-down strike in the late uh, 1930s. During World War II, it was part of the home front when it stopped making cars and trucks and uh, started making artillery shells for, for the war. Uh, and Parker Penn also had his own history uh, of, you know, kind of famous moments when Parker Penns were at world fairs or used to sign treaties that ended wars. So I felt like this little city kind of had a reach beyond itself that I could invoke in telling this story. And of course, Janesville has interesting politics. Before I knew almost anything else about this community, I knew that it was an old, democratic-leaning United Auto Workers town 
that was represented by Paul Ryan, who hadn't begun his ascent yet in the House. And uh, it was an estate that only months before I began to do this work had elected Scott Walker. So I thought there might be something interesting to say politically. So those are some of the reasons why I picked Janesville. And my idea for this book was that I wanted it to feel like a kaleidoscope in which you were seeing what this loss of jobs meant to people from various vantage points in town. And there were some people who run through the story who hadn't lost jobs but were trying to figure out what to do. So there's a social studies teacher at a school called Parker High School who started something called the Parker Closet. And she was just collecting donations of used jeans and toiletries and prom dresses because you could see that there were students from formerly middle class families who didn't have what they needed anymore. Uh, there was a social worker um, in the school system whose job was to work with homeless kids and she and a school sister, uh, a sister um, social worker from school system in Beloit started um, raising money for housing because they could see that there was a growing crop of homeless teenagers, some of them unaccompanied in town. Um, this was kind of a shock to Janesville's identity when they started raising money and to draw attention to this, like, we have homeless teenagers? This isn't what we are in Janesville, but that's what was happening, and uh, they put a lot of effort into raising money. One of the people who runs the story is the leading banker in town who um, formed a, a regional economic development coalition to try to figure out how to um, try to bring jobs back. But the heart of the book is really about um, auto worker families. And I was very interested in, as I came to think of it, what choices do people make when there are no good choices left? So I'm just going to talk for a moment. This is going to be the real antidote to your numbers um, um, about the three main families um, in the story. These are the Vaughns. Um, Dave Vaughn, who's on the left, the older guy, um, retired from General Motors um, with a good pension. His son, Mike, is sitting next to him. And uh, Mike's wife, Barb, is sitting next to uh, him. And the Vaughns were a big union family. They were one of two families in town that had three generations of men on UAW Local 95's executive committee. And Mike Vaughn had been uh, the shop chairman at Lear Seating, which is the biggest supplier to the General Motors plant. And Lear was doing just-in-time production, which meant that three hours before a seat was to be installed into a GM vehicle, it was delivered by Lear. And if you think about how close that coordination is, what do you think happened the day that General Motors shut down? Well, Lear shut down too. So both of them were out of work. And Mike had a few months longer um, because as the top union guy for that plant, um, he was able to stay on while a small cadre of workers took apart the assembly line. I mean, literally took it apart piece by piece. Um, so he had a few months to think about what he wanted to do, and he was trying hard to figure out how could he find other union work. I mean, this was just very ingrained into his identity and his family's identity. He applied for all kinds of union jobs, uh, kind of not just in uh, southeast Wisconsin, but you know, over this kind of Midwestern region, couldn't find anything that made sense to him. So he eventually did what a lot of people did, which was went back to school. And he had thought about what he could translate his union experience into in a new line of work. And it turned out that Blackhawk Technical College, which was the 
to your school that was doing all this job retraining for all these dislocated workers um, was starting a program of human resources management and he thought that this might be a good blend. But if you think about that name, the last word is management. And he had to really get his head around feeling that it was okay, it was ethical if he helped people from the union side, could help people from the management side. But then he had to tell his dad. And he was nervous about that, so you have to read the book to see what happens. <laughs> this is um, uh, Matt Wopat. Um, uh, the Wopat family is another one that runs through um, the story of my book. And uh, Matt had worked at General Motors. He was also from, like a lot of people in town, a multi-generational GM family. His dad, Marv, had worked at the plant for 40 years and was kind of a big guy in, uh, the plant, at the plant. He was on the county um, board of supervisors. He was kind of a big guy in town. And he retired uh, just weeks before Matt lost his job. And Marv, like a lot of people in town, was telling uh, Matt the common wisdom, which was that just wait a while, this plant's going to get a new product. It always has. Um, so there was a lot of denial that this plant was going to stay closed. Um, so Matt waited and waited. He had a buddy who was a roofer, and there weren't many roofs to put on when nobody had any money in town, but he was doing a little bit of that. And he, too, finally decided to go back to school. And he decided to go into utilities work because people were telling him that uh, there were a bunch of older guys who were at the utility company, and they were getting ready to retire, so a group of jobs were going to open up. So he's halfway through his year's program at Black Hawk Tech, and it's starting to dawn on him that those jobs really aren't going to open up because all these guys who were older had their retirement savings, if they had it, wiped out by the recession. So they were working longer and longer and Matt did something he had sworn he would never do. For people who had worked at General Motors itself as opposed to suppliers, um, GM was offering transfers to other plants. So there were people who were commuting to Texas and Kansas City and Michigan and Ohio um, a lot of them didn't move, they were just commuting. And an opportunity came along for um, guys, including, um, guys and women, including Matt, to take a transfer to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was almost 300 miles away, um, but closer than the other places he could have transferred. And these people called themselves GM gypsies, and Matt had just sworn he was not going to become a gypsy. He didn't want to leave his family. But um, the spring of 2010, he began doing that. He began commuting. And all these years later, he's still getting up early on Monday morning and carpooling to Fort Wayne and spending his weeks there and coming home late, late on Friday night. So that's uh, Matt's story. And let me just tell you about one more family. The Whitakers. Um, the younger woman is Kasia. She has a twin sister named Alyssa. And her mom is Tammy. And um, her dad is uh, Jared. And Jared is exactly Matt's age and started working at the GM plant about the same time Matt did and lost his job at the same time. And he also went back to school in this exact same program to uh, become a utilities worker. And a few weeks in, um, the assignment was to climb up a wooden practice pole. And uh, he slid down and kind of tore up his chest on the wood coming down. And he dropped out of school, basically thought, look, what happens if I get on a real utility pole and..." I injure myself, what good am I doing my family now? And he could have transferred but didn't, so he took a very small GM buyout. It's just a couple thousand dollars, but the big selling point was that um, 
it gave his family six extra months of health insurance when they really needed it. And Jared began bouncing in and out of all kinds of low-paid jobs. General Motors had paid $28 an hour at the end, and he was making $12, $13, $14 an hour, and he would take one job and then see something that looked a little better and it wouldn't work out. So he's seldom been unemployed, but he's just not made much, um, much money. And Tammy was working as an um, assistant at one of the public schools in town, teacher's aide. So when they were in high school, um, Kezia and Alyssa, um, who are really bright kids taking all these AP courses and their teachers love them, um, they began looking for part-time jobs. And at one point in high school, when they were seniors, they were working five part-time jobs between them. And they began slipping their parents a um, little bit of money for groceries and for their utility bills. Thank you. Thanks to both of you for both of your presentations. Uh, Amy, I wanted to um, ask you, your book does a remarkable job capturing the variety of experiences of the people of Janesville, um, which you just ran down for us a little bit, but there are even more people in the, in the book who um, share their reaction and, and really open their lives to, um, to you. How did you go about picking who you were going to write about? How, what was that process like? Well, I can tell you that it wasn't fast and it wasn't efficient. <laughs> um, and my editor to this day thinks I have too many people in the story, but I kind of held tough. <laughs> um, I really felt like I needed to understand what were the things that people did when this work went away. Um, and I got to know a lot of people in town. Um, you know, I'd meet somebody, um, like on that first trip I was talking about meeting this old time reporter and I met with the union leaders on that trip, and I met with a guy who runs that Rock County Job Center um, that I showed you the image of. And I would ask everybody, who else should I get to know? Who else should I get to know? So it was kind of this widening circle. And you know, in terms of the three main worker families, um, as I said, I felt as if I needed to understand what were the kinds of choices that people made before I could figure out who were good illustrations of those choices. In the case of the Whitaker family, um, I really wanted to be able to portray what was the effect of all this on kids who were coming of age. So I asked a couple of high school teachers to keep an eye out for me for families that had really been middle class families that were really not making it. And it was through that process that I got to know the Whitakers. So it was a little bit of trial and error, and I did not, at the beginning, ask people the most emotionally penetrating questions, and I thought I wouldn't traumatize them at the outset. So, you know, I got to know people little by little, and what I was looking for were people who, you know, some people lost their houses. You know, some people really fell apart, um, you know, emotionally or in terms of, you know, addictions or other kinds of, you know, social pathology. And other people recovered fine. And I was looking for people who were sort of at neither extreme, but who were clearly dislocated in terms of their you know, financial well-being, and who were trying. So that was some of how I thought about it. Can you talk a little bit about the, the psychological impact that the plant closing and the subsequent the businesses connected to it um, had on the people there? And what do you think? 
lawmakers and the public who are aware of this, what should we take away from, from these stories? Yeah, well, lest you think that he's the only nerd on the, on the panel, um, I did a couple of statistical pieces of work as part of this research, um, one of which was um, a survey just of Rock County um, that I did with some folks at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I was here for a semester in residence, and that's when I began this work with them. It was in 2013, and it was looking at what people's economic experiences and attitudes were, and tried to measure, first of all, how many people were in homes that had lost jobs, and it was about 35% of the people who answered this survey, a lot of people. And then for just those people, we asked a series of questions about what did it do to you emotionally? Um, or your social relationships. And of all those questions, the one that probably grabbed me the most was a question that said, did you, during the time that you were out of work or someone your home was out of work, did you feel ashamed or embarrassed to be out of work? And just over half said yes. And that just blew me away because it said to me, losing a job is so personal. I mean, even if you're losing a job, in the worst economic time this country has had since the Great Depression of the 1930s, in a community where thousands of people are losing exactly the same kind of work as you do, you feel like it's somehow your fault and you should be able to fix it. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I learned. Um, I want to jump over to Charles for a minute and, and talk a little bit about the trend that you've observed about people, you know, the population in the state moving from rural to urban areas. What, can you talk a bit about the long-term policy implications of that trend? Sure. Um, I think there are a couple of things. One is to think of historic Wisconsin in which the you know, northern part of the state is forestry, it's paper. There's a good productive life there where the paper industry has now contracted tremendously. That much is much more difficult than it was. Um, we also have some growth in tourism, but of course tourism is not the most economically gainful kind of employment. The other element is people moving away when they're young. You know, there's a reason why these counties are getting older. It's not because time moves faster there. It's because the young people move out. We've done surveys in which we've asked, where would you advise someone in their 20s to launch their career? Green Bay, Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago, the Twin Cities. It's amazing anybody doesn't li live, still lives here instead of the Twin Cities, which is overwhelmingly attractive all over the state. Um, uh, Madison's in second place, I hasten to add. But, um, but it, it's so true that we see a, you know, people finishing high school, going to college, or even if they're not going to college, looking for a place to work that does not involve a 50, 60, 80 mile commute each way, which is the other way that a lot of people are remaining in place is by upping their commuting distance. Now, the positive side is that the growth we see in our metro areas is really pretty good. And if you look across the country as well as here or historically, Cities can be a major engine for economic growth. So in a sense, if we didn't care where you lived or what your family's traditions were, I think we might celebrate the growth of the cities and the economic vitality that comes from it. 
but it comes at this price of hollowing out a part of the state that has historic roots, has people that just prefer to live there, and that if nothing else means we have an uneven situation in the state with a northern third that's relatively economically distressed and a southern third and especially an urban core, which is a big chunk of the population, doing quite well. So that inequality, that gap between them, I think is a big issue and it's likely to be a political issue, not just an economic issue. Let me just jump in for a second because one of the things that I was curious about that you might wonder is have people been leaving Janesville because the ability to get jobs is really reduced even if the unemployment rate's been improving some. Um, they're not good paid jobs. And what really struck me is that Janesville's population has not shrunk uh, since the plant closed. And we were talking a little bit about this earlier that I think that sometimes economists have this notion that, well, people should just be rational and move to where jobs are if there are no longer jobs at home. And from the people that I got to know in town, if you think about a plant that's been around, that was around as long as uh, the Janesville one was, it began making tractors in 1919 and turning out Chevys in 1923. So you had generations of people for whom this was the best work in town. Um, and that means that there are extended families in town and people feel very anchored there. They don't want to leave. Not to say that nobody has left, but not in the numbers that you might predict just based on the availability of, uh, of well-paid work. So um, one of the options for the out-of-work GM workers was to go back to school. And in your book, you talk a little bit about Black Hawk Tech just up on the screen there. Um, can you talk about how successful or not successful the retraining effort was and why, you know, you know, why the results seemed to be what they were? So I was really interested in the question of job retraining. I mean, it seemed to me that if I was looking at all these jobs that disappeared, the next obvious question is, well, what should people do about it? And, you know, if you think about Republican and Democratic economic policies, there's not a lot of intersection on their lists. Um, but job retraining is something that in slightly different versions, both parties are very supportive of. And there's a lot of federal money that goes into it. Um, the people who retrained at Black Hawk qualified for federal benefits, so they weren't having to pay tuition. Um, and depending on where they had lost their work, some of them had um, gas money to get to school and money for textbooks, so it was a pretty good deal. So I was very interested in how well did this all go. So the other nerdy piece of my research was to take a statistical look at job retraining and um, got some data from uh, the Department of Workforce Development, the state um, wage records and unemployment claims records. And the college helped us to sort of let us know who their students were so we could figure out who the dislocated workers had been. And we looked at who was working before and after the recession? What were people being paid before and after the recession? This is sort of before the recession, then in 2011. So it's about three years after the, um, all these jobs had gone away. Um, and the findings were really counterintuitive. People who had not retrained were doing better in terms of both the likelihood of having work and um, what they were earning. And so your question is, why might that have been? 
You know, I've talked to a lot of people, both people in Janesville, people, and, and I should say to start with, this is not because Black Hawk was not doing a good job. I mean, they were trying like crazy to help these dislocated workers cope. They, um, added, they added courses, right? They I added courses, they hired extra instructors. Um, they figured out really quickly that one big problem they hadn't anticipated was some of these factory workers coming back to school weren't very good using computers. So they were running computer boot camps. I mean, they were doing all kinds of things. They got a federal earmark um, from uh, then-Senator Cole um, push this money through to give it, uh, give just Blackhawk a million dollars each of two years just to focus on dislocated workers. So this school was doing a lot. At the same time, I think there may be a couple things going on. Um, it's possible that those people who could get a job quickly did, and other people waited a little bit. And you know, like Matt was trying to figure out, are these jobs coming back at the plant or not? And eventually went back to school, and it was hard to find work afterwards. Possible that people like um, Mike Vaughn was very successful at his retraining program, and he uh, got a degree in human resources after two years, and got hired as an HR guy working the overnight shift at Seneca Foods right in Janesville. Um, so he felt very lucky about all this. He was earning to start with half of what he'd been earning at Lear. Now I don't know whether people like Mike, who started out at the bottom of the ladder in their new kind of work. You know, I know that his pay has gone up over time, but I don't know as a group whether if I had more recent data you'd see a you know, gradual increase in their pay so it wouldn't look so stark. But I think the big thing is that people, including uh, the guy at the time who was running the job center, a guy named Bob Borman, who's one of the characters who runs through the story of my book, um, assume that this economy um, was going to recover at the rate that it had from previous recessions in the 20th century. And within a couple of years after people finished retraining, jobs would be coming back. And that just turned out not to be right, that the job return has been slower and the pay has been worse uh, than in previous recessions. Um, and it's not an indictment of job retraining as a whole, but I think it does say that um, you can't expect that retraining alone is going to help when there aren't jo jobs around for people to go into. I wonder, I don't know if this is something that you would have followed up on at this point, but does, it would seem to me that if the, the retraining efforts were not successful, did the college have any sort of moment where it rethought about, you know, the method of retraining these workers that you know, this is someone who's used to a factory job and, and the, you know, get collecting a paycheck. Had they, and maybe, again, I don't know if you would know this, but do they, was there any sort of revision in the thinking of how to retrain the workers? Well, I don't think that the college could have done a better job. And, um, you know, I'm not, you know, instantly impressed by institutions that I look at as a reporter. But I really came to think that Black Hawk was very thoughtful in a couple ways. Um, in terms of what fields they were trying to encourage people to go into, you know, the sort of federal idea became, well, colleges should work with their local business leaders to figure out where jobs are likely to lie. In Wisconsin, that already happens. So the school was way ahead um, on that score. 
They also were very sensitive, you know, in my judgment, to the fact that these folks coming back to school were traumatized. Um, I mean, some of them were in their 30s and 40s. They hadn't been in school for half a lifetime. They might not have liked school in the first place. They were out of work. They didn't, you know, as I said, they were feeling embarrassed about being out of work. Um, just their way of life was not what they had expected it to be. And I think the college tried pretty well to help people through that trauma. One thing that um, struck me in terms of what the returning, you know, former auto workers returning to school were, you know, what their expectations were, the job center worked very hard to do aptitude testing. There was this thing called job fit, which was um, administered to a lot of people as they were about to go back to school to try to help them think through, well, what kind of fields might be suited to them that they'd never thought about before. And what the folks at the college told me, um, I mean, there weren't enough counselors for this horde of people, but there were counselors who were working kind of day and night to try to help these people figure out what curriculum to choose, what programs to go into, so that people would take their job fit results and say, I don't care about that. I want to know what can I study that will get me back to $28 an hour. So people weren't really, you know, this is not to overgeneralize, but there were, I think, a number of cases in which people we're thinking about their lost pay and not what might they be good at. I want to jump in on that because I think it's, it bears a little other uh, additional emphasis. There aren't that many jobs out there that pay $28 an hour for guys with a high school education, right? One of the glories of the auto industry in the 30s, but especially the 40s, 50s, and 60s, was that poor kids could move from the South black and white, go to Detroit, walk onto the Ford line, and have a good living. And their children could be making 28 an hour on a GM assembly line. So I'm struck by the retraining point, and I think it's an excellent one. But really, if you've lost a $28 an hour job, there are not that many, no matter how good the retraining is, for you to move into. And if you look at the structure of industry here in the state, where we are usually first and second with Indiana in terms of the percentage of people employed in manufacturing here, in the top two states in manufacturing. But our manufacturing has historically been heavy manufacturing, working with metals, assembling big metal products, you know earth movers and things like that, or building ships in, uh, at Marinette Marine. Um, those industries are not the big growth industries of the day. And so under ideal circumstances, you shut, shut down a big GM plant, there weren't that many opportunities to move to. And then, of course, we were having the greatest recession since the Great Depression. So it's not surprising that people struggle to find an alternative even with the excellent retraining that Blackhawk was doing its absolute best to provide. Um, I have independently read some other studies where people are randomly assigned to retraining or not. These are studies in other states and other times. But again, the, the results are surprisingly depressing that retraining does not lead in general to equal quality, let alone better quality employment but at least some of it is because you're coming down from the very top end of the, of the pay scale and the value added that 
strong arms and hands on, a on an assembly line could provide. Well, I want to uh, get to some of the questions from the audience, and one uh, is put this way. Foxconn is on everyone's mind. Comments? <laughs> Couldn't be better, worth every penny, no question. I, I, I will speak to it just a little bit, and unfortunately, we haven't done a poll this month, last month, August, we usually do, but we're doing something else right now. So I can't tell you what the public thinks. I am struck that the debate over it was livelier than I had initially thought, and a lot more concern among Republicans about it as well, but now it's a done deal. It does seem to me that bringing a different type of manufacturing into the state could be an advantage, and the spin-off suppliers and so on, uh, like the seat manufacturers, could be a really good thing for southeastern Wisconsin. Whether it will ever pay back the extraordinary subsidies that we're paying, I think, is very much up in the air. And I think it's surprising to me that the business community is not asking, well, where's mine? Why are we not paying that much money to Epic? Why are we not paying that much money to Johnson Controls? Why are we not paying that much money to, uh, 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 you know, every business interest group in the state? And so, and, and now we're changing our legal system so that they get automatic appeals to the Supreme Court. I really do wonder what path this sets us on for equity among businesses. And I wonder whether the business community is really that excited to have one business that takes such priority over every other business in the state. There was some uh, conversation about that at an earlier panel today. Um, from Kevin Conroy at Exact Sciences talking about, well, where we really want the investment is in the young companies with, you know, with the entrepreneurs. That's where the growth is. And so it was, it was interesting to get his, his I, thoughts I, on it. I hate to promote a different newspaper, but Dave Haynes in the uh, Journal Sentinel today has an, op, an editorial on what uh, all those billions could do in other things like paying full tuition to 6,700 students at the university. Uh, anyway, so it's worth looking at because it is opportunity cost. Now, like I say, I would be delighted to have 13,000 new jobs and a new industry growing. So I have very mixed feelings about this, but certainly the pay-to-play is very high here. So let me just say that um, having some uh, anticipation that that question might arise, I checked with my two best sources in Janesville this past week about what they thought about whether Foxconn would have a ripple effect as far as Rock County. And they thought that that wasn't that likely. Um, that the, one of them pointed out to me that the main transportation systems are north-south. Uh, so, you know, if supplier companies located in Rock County, having trucks, you know, kind of go through Lake Geneva might not be that practical. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing that I wanted to mention, which is different but sort of related to new jobs potentially, is there was a story, um, yesterday in the Janesville Gazette, uh, and this has to do with what's going to happen to the General Motors plant. I mean, for years, it was in a limbo category called standby. And for a while, it was the only uh, GM plant in the whole corporation that was on standby, which meant that nothing was happening at that plant, but it was eligible to be reopened someday if the market demand warranted it. So then two years ago, um, in the UAW contract, the local uh, 95 was no longer pushing for that. 
um, and business leaders in town had really wanted the plant closed so they could try to have the property sold. Um, so the story that was in the Gazette um, in Janesville yesterday was that a company has signed a preliminary agreement uh, to, you know, if they just do the due diligence and think that everything looks promising, to buy all that land. It's a company out of um, St. Louis that apparently um, buys distressed industrial property and redevelops them. And I couldn't see just in the reading I was doing last night and this morning what they would do with this land, uh, whether they would tear down the plant, what would happen, but that's a big, big deal in Janesville. Well, I have, um, we're getting close to our closing time here, and I have one more question, I think, for Amy um, from the audience. This person said, I interviewed Barbara Ehrenreich following the publication of Nickel and Dimed. What she learned, she said, changed her and how she would view people somehow getting by on limited means. How do you think this book has changed you? Wow, what a great, what a great hard question. <laughs> um, so I think that, well, first of all, Wisconsin is now part of my life in a way that it wasn't. Um, uh, when I spoke at the public library in Janesville uh, in April when the book came out, one of the last questions were, um, was, now that you spent all this time here, would you ever move here? So I had to figure out how to dance on that one and say, <laughs> um, it's now part of my life. But no, I mean, that was serious. But, but I guess the biggest answer is, I think all of this has made me, I mean, I write about social policy, so I write a lot about healthcare policy. So I think I've always thought about, um, you know, the underclass and economic disparity and stuff like that. But I think I have a much more granular, you know, up close sense of what happens to people. Um, and the difference in how different people fare. Um, you know, faced with the same economic trauma of losing the same kind of work. I mean, some people pick themselves back up and aren't bitter, and some people start drinking, and some people kill themselves. I mean, that happens. So I think I have more sensitivity to that variation and have thought a lot more about what determines who does what when something bad and unexpected happens to your uh, your economic way of life. Would either I can't compete with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll close on that note. <laughs> and I really appreciate both of you giving of your time and your insights here today. It's been a really interesting discussion. We're really appreciative. Thank you. Thank you.